In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear saints of God, in just a few minutes we will confess together our faith in the words of the Athanasian Creed. Every year when we confess the Creed on Trinity Sunday, there's always questions about it afterwards, and I want to just address those questions now before we say it, because I don't want to miss the main thing. The first question is always, what, Pastor, what is this about the Catholic faith? Whoever desires to be saved must above all hold to the Catholic faith, and the Catholic faith is this, and this is the Catholic faith. What does that mean, Catholic faith? Are we Roman Catholics now? The word Catholic means according to the whole in Greek, or maybe a better word for it would simply be universal. Catholic is the opposite of the local congregation, the the independent congregation that sits on its own. When we say that we confess the Catholic Church, we're saying, or the Catholic faith, we're saying that we confess the faith that was, has confessed by all Christians in every place and at every time. That's what that means. And the confession of the Holy Trinity, the first great mystery of the Christian faith, and of the incarnation of Jesus, the second great mystery of the Christian faith, is that faith that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. In three persons, we worship the Trinity in unity and the unity in Trinity, neither confusing the persons or confounding the substance, dividing the substance. So this is what the word Catholic means there. Now, the second question that I always get every year about the Athanasian Creed is this business at the end that talks about the judgment of works. We will say in a few minutes, those who have done good will enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. And the question is, well, Pastor, is that not works righteousness? Now, this language of the judgment of works and those who have done good going to life and those who have done evil going to condemnation is biblical language. It's just how the Bible talks about the final judgment. So certainly, if the Bible talks that way, then we should talk that way. But does it contradict with what the Bible says about salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works, so that no one can boast? No. No. We know that it is impossible to do good unless we first have faith. And we know that even after we have faith, that every work that we do is soiled with sin. So even our good works require the Lord's mercy and forgiveness to be truly good in the sight of God. Here's, I think, the key verse for understanding. St. Paul writes, or Hebrews 11 says, that apart from faith, listen to this, apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. That means if you do not have faith in God, everything you do, even your best, holiest works, are not pleasing to Him. But by faith, the opposite is also true, that by faith you are, in fact, pleasing to God. First, by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the doctrine of justification, where the Lord looks at you and He he takes away all your sin and He adds to you the perfect obedience of Jesus, and then also by the work of the Holy Spirit, so that you begin to love and serve God and bless your neighbor. Now, why does the Bible talk so much about a judgment according to works? Now, this is just, this is my guess on this. So, so imagine the pulpit lowers down, so here's my opinion. I think it's a pious opinion, but you can take it or leave it for this. 
But here's why I think the Lord speaks so often about judging works. You imagine the last day, and we're all gathered together before the judgment seat of God, and He's dividing the sheep and the goats, those who believe in Him to His right and those who do not believe to the left. All who trust in Me come into the kingdom. All don't, who don't uh, depart from Me. And I just imagine that on that day there will be a great protest of all of those who are being sent away from the Lord's presence eternally. And they're going to say, now wait a minute. How can you judge us based on if we believe in you or not? We've been trying to get into heaven by our works. We've been trying to get in by our efforts. We've been trying to be good enough. That's, what, that's the judgment day that we were preparing for out there, and the Lord says, fine. <laughs> if you want a judgment of works, let's do the judgment of works. And the result is exactly the same. Because apart from faith, you cannot please God. But by faith, you are pleasing to Him. And I think this is why the Lord speaks so much of, this, of the judgment in this way. So Catholic and so the judgment, those who have done good enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. If we have those things down, that's good because the main thing about the Athanasian Creed is not those two points, but this confession of the great mystery of the Christian faith, the mystery of the Holy Trinity, that we worship one God, we worship the Trinity in unity and the unity in Trinity. The Athanasian Creed is called the Athanasian Creed after St. Athanasius. Not that he wrote it. In fact, it's an honorific title. Athanasius died before the Creed was published, but it was named after him because he was, in the ancient church, the great defender of this Trinitarian doctrine and of this great confession. So we want to lean into this as far as we can. But we have to know that as we lean into this great mystery, we can only go so far, as far as the Bible will let us go, and no further. We have to be careful, too. The old Lutheran theologian Matthew Hafenreffer, you've heard of him, <laughs> he was a professor in Tübingen around the year 1600. He said regarding the mystery of the Trinity that when we speak of these things, we are only able to stammer. We try to speak as clearly as we possibly can, but we have to be very careful and limit our words and guard our lips so that we do not fall into error. St. Augustine, a thousand years, well, 1,300 years before, said this in the introduction to his book on the Holy Trinity. He said, in the case of those who inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we must be careful because in no other subject is error more dangerous, inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. Let me say, I'll say that again. We must be careful because in, in no other subject is error more dangerous, inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. So let's cover first the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity. We speak of one God, always one God, in three persons. And we can, I think, boil it down to five assertions that the Bible makes and say this is about as simple as we can get the doctrine of the Trinity. The first assertion is this, there is one God. 
The Christian church has, from the beginning, been accused of being polytheist, of worshiping three gods. This is absolutely, undeniably, and categorically false. We worship one God. There is one God, and the, Lord, the very first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So first, one God. Second, the Father is God. We see this, and this is probably of all the five statements that we have, this is probably the least controversial of all of them. God the Father is God. The third statement, and this is perhaps the most important and where it gets fun, is that God, or Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. We consider this over and over in the Scriptures. We hear, for example, the confession of St. Thomas, who on the Sunday after Easter says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. I think the most important and the most beautiful argument that, that Jesus is God in the Holy Scriptures is that He is worshipped, and God alone is to be worshipped. So even when He was a baby in the lap of His mother, the wise men come, and the text tells us that they fell down and worshiped Him, Matthew chapter 3. Or the disciples, when they come and find Jesus on the mountain in Galilee after He's raised from the dead, they fall down and they worship Him, and so do we. We worship Jesus. Jesus is God. The fourth statement is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, and maybe the clearest biblical text confessing the divinity of the Holy Spirit is when Ananias and Sapphira, remember in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, they had sold some property but held back some of the profit, and they come to see Peter, and he says, why have you lied to God? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. The fifth statement, so there's one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The fifth and final statement is this, the Father is not the Son, nor the Son, the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Father. There is a distinction between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And those five statements together are the basis of the doctrine, biblical doctrine, and teaching of the Holy Trinity. Now, here's, here's where it starts to get fun, because when we start to read and study and consider the Holy Scriptures and consider the unity of the essence and the plurality of persons, what we start to see is that there is a long and ongoing conversation, most especially between the Father and the Son, that God talks to Himself, and He lets us hear how that conversation goes. Now, this is scattered all throughout the Scriptures, and we considered one of the passages a couple of weeks ago when we were listening to Jesus pray to God the Father, but here's, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, and we're going to go through it a little bit today in the sermon, but Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 goes through a lot of these places. In fact, if you want to think of Hebrews chapter 1 as a category of all those times when God the Father talks to the Son, and it's recorded by the prophets in the Old Testament… And then Hebrews chapter 2 gives us the other side. What does the Son say back to the Father? Let me just, and again, I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 this week, but just let me give you a few of the examples. Hebrews 1 verse 5 quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, where God the Father says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's what the Father says of the Son. 
and that speaks of His eternal begottenness. Or again in Hebrews 5, chapter 1, verse 5, it quotes 2 Samuel, verse 7, where God the Father says, I will be to Him a Father, and He to me a Son. Hebrews 1, verse 6 quotes Deuteronomy, verse 32, which says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Hebrews 1, verse 8 quotes Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. This, by the way, is the passage that I can never remember. I don't know how many times I've tried to memorize Psalm 45, and it just will not stick. So, you, so you all should have to remember it for me so I can point to you and you can t- remind me what it says. It's an, it's an astonishing passage. It's the passage where it's promised that the Messiah will have the Holy Spirit more than anybody else. So it talks about how Jesus is the one who will restore the Holy Spirit to humanity, but it's the Father saying this to the Son. So Hebrews 1 verse 8 quotes Psalm 40, 45 verses 6 and 7, and God the Father says to the Son, listen to these words, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just, can you just imagine that the Father talks to the Son and calls Him God? This, this is incredible stuff. Hebrews 1 verse 10 quotes Psalm 102, which says this, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. That's the Father talking to the Son, calling Him Lord. Or Hebrews 1.13, quoting Psalm 110, where we had this last week, where the Lord God the Father says to the Son, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God the Father is talking to God the Son and giving Him all of these gifts. In fact, that's the main thing, if we just want to think about this, about what it means to worship the Trinity, what it means to have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it means this. It means God the Father gives gifts to the Son. And God the Father and God the Son give gifts to the Spirit. And God the Spirit gives gifts back to the Son and to the Father. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, we pick up the reverse side of the conversation. It's quoting the, what the Son says to the Father. So here's a few verses. Hebrews 2 verse 12 quotes Psalm 22. That famous, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? But it's at the end of the psalm. It says that Jesus says to the Father, I will declare your name to my brethren. And in the next verse, 2 Samuel verse 22 is quote, chapter 22 is quoted, I will put my trust in him, the Son says of the Father. And then in the next verse, it quotes Isaiah 8, here I am and the children God has given me. In other words, Jesus, now just think about this. Jesus gathers you up. He comes and He redeems you. He dies for your sins. He cleanses you. He calls you His own. He adopts you into His family. You are now the sheep of His pasture. He gathers you together as His church, and then he, He gives you to the Father as a gift. Here I am and the children you've given me, so that God the Father gives us to the Son, and then the Son takes us, and He gives us back to the Father. Now, I I am maybe not the best giver of gifts. I've been known to give some pretty ridiculous gifts in my time, and I I remember the very first year that Carrie and I celebrated Christmas together, I I thought I was so fantastically triumphant because I got her an emergency medical kit (laughs) as a Christmas gift. (laughs) Yeah, that's what she did the same thing that you guys are doing. What kind of gift is that? She said, oh, I just don't want you to get hurt or anything, you know. 
what kind of, but that's what we might think. When we hear a verse like this where the Lord says that, that we, we, you and I, His church, are the gift that Jesus is giving to the Father. And we say, what kind of gift is that? What, what, what do you want to give us? I mean, couldn't you do better? And Jesus says, no. You, you, you and I are the best that the Son has to give to the Father. Here I am and the children that you've given me. That's in Hebrews 2.13. And then later on in Hebrews chapter 10, it quotes Psalm 40. This is a bit of a riddle verse, but where the Son says to the Father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you gave to me. That's Jesus saying, the, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't work to atone for sin, but you gave me a body so that I can die on the cross and win a people for your own self. Now, this, this is an amazing series of texts. It, it turns out that, that God is talking to Himself. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are having a conversation, and that conversation is about you and your salvation and your redemption and your rescue, and your deliverance, and the forgiveness of your sins. Can you imagine it? If we say, wow, here, here we are try, down on earth trying to talk about the greatest thing that we can possibly talk about, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it turns out that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven sitting on the throne are talking about us and how to deliver us. Francis Pieper, the old Lutheran theologian, uh, I'm going to read this whole quote. It's kind of long, but he says something incredible. He, he says that the doctrine of the Trinity is not to be considered an abstraction or some sort of academic thing, but rather it's talking about our salvation. He's contrasting the natural knowledge of God, which is what we can know about God through reason or philosophy or looking around. He's contrasting the natural knowledge of God with the biblical revealed saving knowledge of God, and he says this. The natural knowledge of God cannot deliver us from an evil conscience. The Christian knowledge of God, however, calms the troubled conscience. In fact, it is our salvation. Scripture does not propose the doctrine of the Trinity as an academic question or a metaphysical problem. With the proclamation that in the one eternal God there are three persons of, the, of one and the same divine essence, Scripture combines the further gracious message that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son into death as the Savior from guilt of sin and death, that in the fullness of time the eternal Son became incarnate and by His vicarious satisfaction reconciled the world to God, and that the Holy Ghost engenders faith and thus applies to man the salvation gained by Christ. When the Christian confesses, I believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he is saying, I believe in the God who is gracious to me, a sinner. When we confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are confessing the God who is gracious, the God who gives, the God who loves, and whose love is who He is. Now, part of the mystery of the Holy Trinity is this, that because there is an otherness in the unity of the Godhead, there is the capacity for eternal love. 
Because love requires an object. Love requires another. And if God is only, only one person in eternity, then in eternity there is no other for Him to love. But God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all the way along from the very beginning. And so He is, by essence, love. And that God who is love continues to love by giving Himself to us. The Father who gives Himself to us with all of creation and the Son who gives Himself Himself to us, even unto death, to win for us eternal life, and the Holy Spirit who gives Himself to us so that we might be His holy people. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the God who is love, who is the God who loves you. This is what we heard in the text from John 3. And I think it's why the text is read on Trinity Sunday. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave. That's what love does. It gives. But He gave His only begotten Son. And He gave Him all the way to your flesh and blood. He gave Him all the way to your sin and to the wrath of God that you deserved. He gave Him all the way to the cross, to the whip, and the thorns, and the nails, and all the way to the grave. He gave him completely so that he might have you completely. Now consider this as we, as we sort of finish our meditation this morning, that God, the Father and Son, exist in this eternal conversation of love, this eternal giving and self-giving to one another, and that we in our sin were alienated from that life of God, but that God the Father said that I will now cut off my son so that you can be grafted in. The Father who loves the Son forsakes him on the cross so that He will never forsake you. The Father who loves the Son strikes the Son with His wrath so that you can avoid it forever. So that you, children of wrath, so that we, children of darkness and death, might be called the children of God and invited into this holy conversation. Dear saints, this mystery, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this mystery of the Trinity, is not only where we've come from, but it is also where we are going. And one day soon, because of what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for us, we will behold God in His glory. We will see Him face to face And we will rejoice in His kindness that knows no end. So let us rejoice. You are a Christian. We are a Christian people. And this doesn't just mean that we confess the mystery of the Holy Trinity, but that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, world without end.
Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.